Morning. Hiya. It's Taryn from John Taylor. Yes, hello. I, hello. Good to come in. Do come in, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the PJ Pod. I'm executive editor Nigel Prates, and you join me as I enter the home of a patient alongside a pharmacist who's based at the local hospice in Birmingham. Hello, nice to meet you. So I'm, I'm Nigel, I'm from the Pharmaceutical Journal, so I'm just here to record your interaction with Turin and this is for, you know, for other pharmacists to learn what, what, you know, what Turin is doing and, and maybe they can apply that in their pharmacy. You know. oh, how'd you do Nigel? Nice to meet you. The three of us are sitting in the patient's kitchen, and there's a massive box filled with different medicines in front of us. Can I have a quick look at your medicines and any information you've got about them? You've got a little printout there, that's wonderful. That's thank you. All the stuff I'm on at the moment. Taryn, the pharmacist, is particularly interested in how the patient, who we'll call Susie, is getting on with a medicine that was meant to help her with her hot flushes. But the drug has caused some problems with her breathing. Um, I know when I last met you, I think about a week or two ago, um, we tried increasing your gabapentin. Yes. And that, that didn't, didn't go down well, did it? No. no. Um, am I right in thinking that you made your breathing a bit worse yeah. after you started that? Yeah, it certainly did. It was um, twice as bad as it normally is, just going up 100 once a day. So I did it for four days and... I had to stop. Yeah. Susie has quite a complex set of conditions, including severe COPD, which means she's got to wheel an oxygen cylinder behind her when moving around. When I get up and move about to do anything, then I'm short of breath. Yeah. So I would be swigging it all day. Okay. I guess when it comes. She's also being treated for incurable breast cancer. Something's going to kill me sooner or later, isn't it? Let's be honest. Mm. You know, it's it's a race now between the the emphysema, the breast cancer, and maybe the thyroid cancer. Who knows? So, you know. Yeah, and I guess. That's... Despite all this, it's the simple things that Susie misses doing. I love gardening, and it's such a struggle. Yeah. Especially in this weather when it's nice and sunny outside. You want to be out in the garden, don't you? Yeah. But I can't bear being in the sun. It's too hot. Ever since the COVID-19 pandemic, there's been a sea change in where people end their lives. The number of people dying at home in England has risen by a third, making it more important than ever that people have access to the right care outside of hospital. In Birmingham, patients like Susie are lucky enough to have specialist pharmacists as part of their multidisciplinary care team that goes out into the community and helps plug gaps in care that exist for patients with life-limiting illness. For now, how do you feel about starting something um, for the vet? So the vendor vaccines normally once a day, so it's not going to be loads of tablets to take that day. (laughs) Jolly good, I've got a a timetable already. You've got your own schedule, I can see. Oh, really yes. da- down to the half an hour. And it's in my phone. <laughs> so the alarm goes off and I know I've got to do something. <laughs> okay. Um, just, I mean, I guess obviously with any new medicine, you might get side effects and things to expect. Yeah. As you're starting to get a low dose, um, I don't anticipate that the side effects will be too troublesome. But generally, some people might feel a little bit sick when they first take this medicine. Um, but I guess you could say that about most tablets when you first mm. start taking them. Um, 
and you might feel a little bit slightly dizzy, drowsy, but I guess if you're taking it in the evening and you're going to bed... <laughs> I'm drowsy all day, anyhow. <laughs> I'd just say be careful if you're feeling more drowsy than normal. Yeah, so um, just take it in the evening. Yeah, I'd suggest taking it evening before bedtime Yeah. Uh, once a day. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll probably still come and see you on Tuesday um, in the day centre because I'm not in at the rest of As we leave, I'm really struck by how engaged Susie is with her medicines and how skilled Taryn's been in providing information and giving her the best possible care. <laughs> uh, and what I'll also do is I'll write to your GP to let your GP know that I've been out today, we talked about the, the hot flushes and we're going to try something okay. um, just so that they know for their records and that they're kept in the loop with everything as well. Is yeah, that okay? That's fine. Yeah, yeah, lovely. Right, I'll sort a prescription out now um, and then we can get that hopefully started fairly soon. Specialist pharmacists who go out into the community to help manage patients like Susie are actually quite rare. And this means patients and carers often experience delays in getting a prescription for vital medication. And even Taran's service is not 24-7. Palliative care isn't predictable, and when patients or carers are faced with a sudden deterioration in symptoms at evenings or weekends, it can be incredibly difficult to access the right drugs. We've had a series of studies um, looking at how to help patients and their families manage medicines in the home in the last year of life. This is Sue Latter. She's Professor of Health Services Research at the University of Southampton. And in a couple of studies that we were running several years ago, we noticed that the issue of access to medicines in particular was, was a, a key issue for patients and their families. So that led to us taking a closer look at that particular issue of um, access and self-management of medicines at home. Um, including the role of community pharmacy within that. Sue leads a research team that's been looking at the issue of access to medicines for end-of-life patients. I asked her how extensive she thought the problems were. Um, we had a lot of healthcare professionals, community nurses, community pharmacists, say to us that they couldn't always, for example, um, access patient records in order to provide prescriptions safely, for example. Um, we heard quite a lot that healthcare professionals weren't aware of each other's services. So from a healthcare professional point of view, I think we could say some of the problems are quite prevalent. When we looked at patient and carer experiences, their experience somewhat depended on um, the model of service delivery that was being used to supply palliative care in the community to them. And by that, I mean whether they had, for example, a GP as a main prescriber, in which case access experiences were somewhat difficult, where there were more nurse prescribers, um, patients had a, a better experience, um, where community pharmacies were well stocked with medicines uh, that are relevant in the last year of life, and importantly, where pharmacists had a good relationship with the rest of the primary healthcare team, we saw that patients had a better experience. So, I guess in summary, um, quite prevalent, but some models are operating better than others. Mm, so it depends kind of where you are and what the setup is locally. Indeed, yes, and that's quite variable, unfortunately, at the moment. What examples came up for you in terms of the effect on patients and carers of not having that access to medicines when they needed them? I think it, it, it caused distress 
Um, it, it, and you can imagine at a time of life when emotions are running high, uh, carers are often older themselves, sometimes with health problems. That inability to obtain medicines quickly was truly very difficult. We heard stories from, from both healthcare professionals and patients of patients sometimes or their carers needing to travel from one pharmacy to another in order to secure the medicines they need needed um, clearly at a time when it's very difficult for them. Um, we also heard, or certainly the literature, uh, the evidence suggests that um, if patients don't access medicines easily, quickly in the home and they, they don't understand how to use them uh, in the best way possible, you know, that, that does have serious implications for use of unplanned or emergency services, be that, you know, 999 calls, uh, be that unscheduled visits to A&E or indeed admissions to hospitals. So it's a pretty critical issue. Yeah, obviously when it comes, we're saying symptoms, but these are, you know, things like pain, confusion, sleep, nausea. These are really quite things that can really affect you, can't they, as a patient? Mm -hmm. Very much so. And, and you know, they're strong, powerful medicines that are quite often used um, in the last months and weeks of life. So we're talking about opioids, and then, of course, um, the side effects from those can be quite difficult to manage, quite challenging, and those in themselves might um, initiate unplanned use of services if, if not managed correctly. And, of course, it's also a time when symptoms are changing rapidly, so the need for different medicines um, also fluctuates, changes quite quickly, so it's, it's a difficult time. Supply is often difficult due to the challenges of the supply chain. We often find out that we can't get hold of the, the medicines that we, we want in, in a timely fashion. This is Emma Jones, consultant pharmacist and national lead for community healthcare in Wales. He had a similar story on the problems that palliative patients can encounter at home. And that can be uh, burdensome for kind of the, the carers and the family members in the community because we've got hot horror stories of people running around looking for medicines, going from pharmacy to pharmacy, can't get hold of their medicines where they, they really should be at home with, with their loved ones. So um, that's what we try and avoid. Emma said particular problems came from relying on the vagaries of the wholesaler market, which, let's be honest, can be difficult at the best of times. Often... Um, we're not able to fulfill the prescription because there's there's no stock availability. That can be challenging. Um, often then it requires us to to maybe um, change change that um, medication that we, we we have to prescribe to that individual to make sure that they can get some symptom control, um, which does make it really challenging for um, clinicians on the ground to to understand what they should be prescribing because they don't get that visibility of of stock. Unfortunately, so it means the specialist palliative care nurses or the district nurses and the prescribers and the pharmacists, they've all got to kind of work collaboratively to, to try and ensure that we have the right symptom control because we don't know what's going to go out of stock within the next next couple of weeks. So it, it is challenging to, to ensure that, you know, when we try to keep hold of some type of formery, to make sure that we educate the prescribers on what they should be prescribing when you know the, the the supply chain isn't as robust as it could be 
So it's kind of quite difficult then to ensure that we know what to prescribe and what pharmacies should keep. There are ways around this. Sue says that anticipatory prescribing is key, including so-called just-in-case boxes, which can be kept in patients' homes if a GP or nurse thinks they might deteriorate suddenly and then be administered by a carer in an emergency. They typically contain medicines such as injectable opioids for pain and other drugs for sickness, breathlessness and to dry up secretions from the mouth and chest. There was some evidence from our systematic review that showed that in the US, where those medicines kits were in place in the home, then they certainly did prevent out-of-hours visits, use of unscheduled or unplanned care. Now, there's not a huge amount of evidence, but I think anecdotally, healthcare professionals would also say incredibly important, particularly in the out-of-hours period when we know access to medicines can be even more difficult. Although there has also been some work from Ben Bowers and his colleagues at Cambridge, which suggests that we need to be using them in a balanced and judicious way, and they're not something that should be just left in patients' homes and prescribed without thought. So they do need to be used in a tailored and personalised way, as you said earlier. As Sue says, just-in-case boxes can reduce suffering and prevent unnecessary hospital admissions. But some experts have raised concerns. Around 40-50% to 50% of anticipatory medicines are never used, which of course is wasteful, and their presence in the home could increase the risk of diversion and even create the impression for family members or healthcare professionals that a patient is more sick than they really are. In Wales, during the COVID-19 pandemic, they looked at things differently. Emma was part of a team that was planning how to care for potentially large numbers of patients dying at home, and they looked at how to prioritise just-in-time provision of medicines rather than just-in-case. So we had to plan for a worst-case scenario. Um, we didn't want family members having to travel around multiple pharmacies trying to get um, their hands on, on palliative care medicines. That's burdensome and that's distressing for them. And also we wanted to make sure that, you know, if worst case scenario, we had a limited supply of, of medicines, then we wanted to make sure there was equity across Wales. We didn't want a situation that we had a health board or a, a, an individual in a certain health board that could have access to, to medicine than someone in another health board without. So we decided that um, to look at a hub based distribution system to try and provide that total geographical coverage across Wales for the delivery of end-of-life medicines. Emma worked with colleagues across the Welsh Government to put in place a service where any healthcare professional in the community could order anticipatory palliative care medicines and they'd be delivered within just two hours of them being requested. So we worked with um, colleagues in Welsh Government, colleagues with, within procurement. We also work with the, um, the military service to, to do some uh, mapping exercise. So they did a lot of that logistics mapping for us and we identified six hubs across Wales that were geographically located that we could deliver palliative care medicines to anyone within a postcode in Wales within two hours. And in order to carry this out, we t teamed up with um, Health Courier Wales Service who are the, um, the wheels of the NHS, if you like. So they made their drivers available for us 24-7 to be able to achieve our target. 
The guiding principle was how to prevent shortages of critical medicines during the pandemic, which was a real danger. The thought process behind it was just-in-time prescribing. So because we had limited stock, we couldn't afford to do the um, just-in-case prescribing or anticipatory prescribing because that could potentially, we could have had medicines sit in places unused. Um, people, some because obviously a lot of anticipatory medicines don't get used. But once they've prescribed and once they're dispensed in someone's home, then we, we can't retrieve them. We can't get them back. So you could have a situation that you have a lot of medicines out there not being used and then in other areas that you've got a peak maybe and then we can't get hold of anyone any any medicine so we decided to do it centrally to have a bit more visibility of stock so we can shift stock accordingly across wills should kind of the worst case scenario happen um so yeah so it was a very timely service so we could deliver medicines anywhere in wills within two hours Fortunately, we didn't need to use the service as much as we had predicted, which, which is a good thing. But there are still some lessons to be learned from this centralised model of delivering palliative care medicines that could ease the problems that some patients encounter. So we do need to look at things differently. Um, I'm not suggesting we, we stop anticipatory medicines at all because you know we, we need to ensure that people get medicines in their in in their home so so they can have symptom relief in a timely manner but there is something around um more just in time prescribing that you know if we've got better access to these medicines in the community in in hubs that we know we've got that robust way of getting hold of them getting the medicines delivered in then you know something that we could consider in the future is um around the, the, the need for anticipatory prescribing and, and the way to deliver um, end-of-life medication in the community. It'd probably be incredibly expensive to put in the same system they did during the pandemic, but it's this kind of radical thinking that could help prevent waste and ensure that patients can access the medicines they need 24-7. However, in lieu of that, pharmacists may have to work out a way of managing this themselves. For instance, New daffodil standards developed by the Royal Pharmaceutical Society and end-of-life care charity Marie Curie advise that community pharmacies set up WhatsApp groups and alert each other about the availability of critical end-of-life care medicines that are in short supply. But Sue raises an important point that it's not just about supply, it's also about having healthcare professionals to support the use of those medicines as well. I think we have to move away from the idea of the GP is the funnel for all requests for prescriptions. We know there are workforce problems. We know that there are other healthcare professionals, pharmacists and nurses who are more easily accessible to patients. So what we're calling for is um, mm. support, be that in money, in time, uh, for more community nurses and pharmacists to train as prescribers so that patients have uh, more points of access rather than having to um, funnel back to the GP all the time. And we've, but we've argued that uh, alongside that, when we're training other groups of professionals as prescribers, we need to make sure that they have the same kind of access that GPs have to electronic prescribing systems, so that they're not forced to handwrite prescriptions that are then difficult for patients and carers to take to pharmacies. And we need to make sure that there is um, universal access to 
electronic patient records to support safe prescribing decisions. Basically, Sue's saying we need more specialists in the community able to take on the prescribing and management of palliative care, just like Taryn, who we met at the start of the episode. Back at the hospice that he works out of, we sat down in his office and had a chat about what he thought a pharmacist added to the team. I think um, as a pharmacist, I think um, my expertise and knowledge and skill base um, from not just from doing the pharmacy degree, but also all the post-registration working in clinical pharmacy and hospital pharmacy, being exposed to a broad range of um, clinical situations and environments. I think that really adds um, really adds to this experience because I think what we sometimes forget is patients have other things wrong with them. Um, patients are often on medicines which are unrelated to their palliative diagnosis. Um, sometimes it, there could be an interplay between uh, things that they're taking for another condition which are actually causing them um, some difficulties with their symptoms and actually coming in and having that kind of holistic knowledge of how medicines work in general across different conditions um, that's really a good bonus to kind of add into what we do into the community um, and to kind of give that support to the specialist palliative care nurses who, who are great at what they do they have their own uh, scope of practice their own uh, specialist knowledge as well um, but we're going in as an extra level of support on top of that as well to kind of um, cover all those little bases and gaps and is it do you enjoy it? Yeah, I love it. Um, I've been here almost nine years now. Um, so I feel like I've been kind of now deep into palliative care uh, for quite some time. Um, but I really enjoy working flexibly both on the inpatient unit but also in the community and having a caseload of patients to see in the community. Um, it does vary the day, it does break up the day. And it does also test your knowledge because you're seeing patients with different conditions from one day to the next. Um, you know, one day you could be having to deal with someone really complex on the unit um, who might have really difficult pain, for example, from their cancer. And then the next day you could be going out to see someone at home who's uh, an end-stage renal failure, who's come off dialysis and you need to kind of look at what medicines to use for their symptoms, what doses, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. So there's so much variability in the job that it really keeps you on your toes um, and that really keeps the job interesting too. So can you tell me what the hardest part of the job is? Uh, I'd guess the hardest part of the job um, would be seeing patients um, when they're at the most vulnerable at home. So I think it's the emotional and the psychological side of of what we see Um, because we do get invested in in patients we often follow them in their journey um, we're not seeing patients as a one-off sometimes so we're seeing them um, over a period of time and you do get to know them their family their relationships and actually when it when patients do start to approach that terminal phase of their illness um, things can be quite difficult emotionally um, in terms of what we what we see um, so that's quite hard to try and balance in the job I think you need to have a bit of resilience in this role really to be able to manage uh, that side of, of the role alongside the kind of normal clinical role that we do. And do you think everywhere needs the equivalent of you in in to, to help as well? I, th- I think our service is really beneficial I think um, we provide that crucial link, I guess, between other professionals who go out and see people at home, um, between the doctors, the nurses and all the other allied health professionals. We have a really important role to play, um, not just in terms of medicines access, but also the education advice, managing complex symptoms. Um, I think there's a real role that we can grow within palliative care pharmacy, um, particularly as the prescribing role starts to become more embedded within within the pharmacist profession, um, for us to be that link and to be that expert professional who's going out and addressing those problems. 
NHS England's long-term plan promised to introduce proactive and personalised care planning for everyone identified as being in their last year of life. But it's clear that's not happening for everyone. As Taryn says, specialist pharmacists can play a massive role in ensuring that patients can end their lives peacefully at home, surrounded by their family. And across the UK, as thousands more pharmacists are trained to prescribe there's an opportunity to use this resource to help build a nationwide service to manage the medicines of patients with life-limiting conditions. And when it comes to medicine supply, it's time to think radically. There are some plans in Wales to look at greater central control and oversight of critical medicines, and we'll reveal more on those plans as we find out about them. Thank you to Sue, Emma and Taryn for their help with this episode and special thanks to Susie for being so welcoming and allowing me into her home to record. Yeah, we discussed that on Tuesday. Okay. Is that so, all right? Yeah, thanks, Taryn. Is there anything else you wanted to bring today to mention while I'm here? I don't think so. No? I'll probably think of three things after you've gone. That's fine. You can always <laughs> ring me afterwards, you know that. All right. As ever, if you want to let us know what you thought of this or any other episode of the PJ Pod. Use the hashtag PJPod on social media or email us at editor at pharmaceutical-journal.com. Till next time, bye-bye.